Welcome to Consumer Adventures. My name is Giorgia Pasqualetto, and in this podcast, I bring you behind the scenes of emerging challenger consumer brands. Today with me, I have Alexander Patterson, CEO and co-founder at Liba Beverages, the award-winning ready-to-drink bottle cocktails crafted by a world-class mixologist. The company was founded and is based in Shanghai, and their luxury cocktails are served in hundreds of hotels, restaurants, and bars, as well as online directly to consumers internationally. So I'm actually very, very excited about today's interview. I have met Alex back in 2017 in Shanghai, and we were going to his parties in his flat at some events trying out his products i have amazing memories of those days thank you so so much alex for joining me today such a pleasure to have you how are you thank you thank you for having me yeah it's it's funny also to remember back to 2017 uh, really the very very beginning days of liba we started in the early days of 2017 to investigate and, and figure out our product and what we wanted to do and early days of a business plan we incorporated the company on the 2nd of August in 2017 and and it's been quite a wild ride since then so yeah I'm doing well thank you enjoying the sunshine here in Shanghai that's awesome there's a bit of sun here in London as well which is great so Alex why don't we start by introducing a bit your uh, product mm. so uh, what's the concept and can you tell us something more about your amazing cocktails <laughs> yes uh, sure So we started in 2017, originally founded by myself, uh, from Denmark, and another Danish guy and an Irish guy. We then quickly brought on a partner mixologist, a guy called Michael Chen, who has, he's, his heritage is Chinese, but he's grown up in New Zealand and Australia. And, um, and yeah, we started looking at making craft cocktails, so premium, and in the space where we could deliver them in the same way that you'd expect to get a cocktail if you went to a really nice bar. Pretty early on, we started doing deliveries, home deliveries, and then we got more and more requests from the hotel space. And I think it has something to do with the fact that we had a lot of friends who work in the hotel space, but we decided to invest in developing a, a factory or kind of co-investing in a small factory And, and developing a product that we could wholesale and that had all licensing and further on could, could export and be very, very heavy into the luxury hotel space, which was amazing for us and it was going really well. And then, of course, with, um, with COVID coming, I'm sure you can imagine that hotels suddenly didn't have so many guests and that also meant suddenly didn't order so many cocktails. So we had to kind of think new and say, okay, well, let's, let's move um, ahead. Let's go back to also doing more home consumer. Let's do that even more now and, and push. So these days the company is focused around still luxury hotels uh, doing quite well, actually uh, home consumption. And one of the new and exciting things that we're doing is we're working with a lot of global airlines and cruise lines. Um, basically it, it comes down to a few things, convenience, quality and consistency so we whenever you get a live cocktail it's always gonna be exactly how michael chen intended it to do to to taste like and and it's always going to be the same kind of drink um and then of course the quality is going to be uh the way we we hope it to be and it's just going to be convenient and easy so people can do it at home if you're in a hotel in a mini bar or down in the lobby bar pool bar whatever restaurants um that's basically what we do we we provide handcraft cocktails anytime, anywhere. 
sounds absolutely amazing. So I remember in 2017, actually, when we met, I think you were still at the home delivery stage. Um, so yeah, the idea okay. probably was basically a little bit for um, house parties and things like that. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, so we had a lot of ambitions with, with moving into hotels, restaurants, and so on. We wanted it to be more, we didn't want to be a catering company, even though we kind of started that way. We simply, by the nature of being in China, the licensing and the regulatory environment is actually very strict. And so we, we needed a certain volume before we could get it done in a, in a factory where you have much higher MOQs which meant that we had to kind of start out a little bit. And it was very good because we, we were very close to the consumer, getting a lot of feedback, constantly tweaking and, and working around how to make the product better and, and developing a, a good um, fan base, if you will, or you know, uh, loyal customers. And, and then slowly as it became bigger and bigger, we were able to make that switch and, and provide factory produced, still very high quality cocktails, of course, even better um, when the volumes go up and the consistency goes up. And then that meant that we could export. We started selling in Thailand for, you know, huge tourism market, at least it was in 2019. And um, they're, they're still in, in, in lockdown now also. Um, but also many other countries, Singapore, Hong Kong. And now we have, I mean, um, we're launching a ton of markets all the time. So it's, it's really, really exciting. And it's, it's great. I'll give you a number. We're producing here in April 1 million cocktails. So not so small anymore. Um, yeah, our factory is running at full capacity um, in, in this month. Um, not to say that we're always running at full capacity, but we had so much new stuff come in that we're trying to ramp up and <clears throat> have a little bit of buffer as well. So I think we're going to be going from a million in April, then we're going to be producing for the rest of the year about half a million. Um, per month units so cocktails until we until we decide to ramp it up but that's at least the what the production plan looks like for now um and a lot of that is going all over the world um it's pretty pretty wild to think when when i look at it and say hey uh, at this any given moment there could be someone sitting on a beach in the bahamas or there could be someone out in a small village in scotland or wales there's someone sitting in Thailand by the pool on a roof of a tall building. There's someone here in China. Uh, there's people having a gathering at home in London. All over, actually, already exactly we have that. people consuming it. It's something. It's something we started a few years ago. So when you when you you know, I've never I never thought that I'd get into something like this. To be completely honest, but um, it was more of an opportunity and coincidence and and the passions of my co-founders as well. That, that we wound up doing this thing. And, and it's been so amazing to see. And, and this physical, the idea of having a physical product and seeing people enjoy a physical product and seeing something you created from scratch didn't exist, suddenly be all over. And people are who don't know us, people are tagging us in their Instagram posts every single day. It's, it's, um, it's pretty surreal in, in many ways. And I'm really, uh, well, both proud of the team that we have. We, we're about 45 people now in the company overall full-time staff and a lot of part-time and um yeah everybody's just been working really hard to to get where we are now so it's really fantastic yeah that sounds incredible so let's go back in time for a second before Liba. what is your background and how mm -hmm. did you actually end up in china yeah yeah so uh, my background is that i grew up in denmark copenhagen um born and raised and i 
happened to go to an international school in Switzerland for one school year, where I then, after coming, I actually skipped a grade when I moved to Switzerland. And then when I came back, because I had skipped a grade in Switzerland, I had to go back to a grade above. And it was like, either I go in a new grade in my old school with people I didn't really know, or I just continue and go in international school. So either way, it was kind of a new start, if you will. And I chose the international school, which meant that all my, all my classmates were basically other children of expats and diplomats. Not that I was, as one of the few native Danish people in international school in Copenhagen. But um, that meant that when it came to graduation time, I also wanted to go abroad, just like many of them went. I don't know if you want to call it abroad or home, but, but you know, not in Denmark. So I went to Vancouver, University of British Columbia for four years for my Bachelor of Commerce, where I specialized in finance. So by education, I'm, I, I'm a finance guy. And um, I've since, for, for fun, actually done a CFA. And I have also done an MBA here in, in, in um, Shanghai, in Chinese, actually. But that's a completely separate thing, just to wrap up the education. And, and in, in Vancouver, there's so many Asian um, exchange students as well. And so many people who live there that are actually of Asian descent. So there's a huge focus on Asia. The Asian studies program is really amazing at that school. And, and so by nature also, there's a lot of um, partnership schools around Asia, uh, one of which being the Shanghai Tong University in Shanghai. And so I did a summer program simply because I didn't want to do any more boring internships. So I'd done a couple internships in the summers between semesters and, and wanted to do something that was still beneficial for my future career, uh, something that was interesting and something where I could learn and, and it looked good on my resume, but I just didn't want to sit and be an intern. I, I had done that, you know, so I didn't know that it would really benefit me so much. So I did the Shanghai summer program and that's really where it all started. Um, I fell in love with Shanghai I decided to study Chinese 101, 102 when I came back to university for my, uh, for my last year. And then after I graduated from university, I just thought, why go back to little Denmark and try and find a job? Why not just try and see if I can make it work? I'll go to China for a year. I'll study Chinese and maybe some opportunities will come up and, and, and who knows? And so that was the original idea with moving to China. Um, before I even moved, I met the founder of a, an IT startup. It was kind of like a summer mixer thing. And I, I get to talk to this guy and I was telling him, hey, I want to move to Shanghai. Uh, I already speak Chinese. I, I told him I, I literally had a, a very basic Chinese. <laughs> and I just said, oh yeah, I, I studied business. I speak Chinese. You know, I'm newly graduated and single. So, you know, no kids, no the need to go to school. So everything that he's hearing is like, oh, Here's a guy who wants to go already. I don't need to convince him. And he's yeah. cheap and, and, you know, fresh and whatever, speaks Chinese and eager, full of energy. Um, probably probably very inexperienced, green, and, and <laughs> ready to make a lot of mistakes too. But, you know, he was willing, willing to make um, a gamble. And he actually hired me on a six-month contract to set up the China office for his IT company. So they were having a lot of issues um, getting their products into China because of concerns around spyware or whatever they were selling um, it hardware so different different computers servers lots of different it equipment where they pre-installed software based on corporate kind of enterprise clients uh, needs but as you, i'm sure you can imagine if you take something that's made in china 
send it to Europe, and then you install a bunch of software on it, and then you send it back to China, <laughs> that that gets flagged. They're saying, "Hey, well, you know, we don't like well. we don't like the f- yeah yeah." So they were having a lot of trouble with the branches in China where in need urgently of a um of a of a local setup. And so just to my luck, I met him when he was having troubles with China and said, "Hey, if you want, I'll I'll solve that problem for you." So so I went to Shanghai. I started. I think I had about fifty coffee meetings in the first thirty days. Um, just meeting as many people as I could. I I didn't know a single person when I moved to Shanghai, like not not even one.、Um, and I went on LinkedIn and I started contacting other Danish people. I started contacting entrepreneurs, business people, and just really reaching out to hundreds of people and connecting with as many people as I could, just so that even if they would accept my friend request on LinkedIn but not respond to my comment. At least the next person would think that I was friends with this person, and maybe they would respond to my comments. So I was just—I really went all out on this kind of、um, approach to networking.、Um, got involved with Danish Chamber of Commerce,、uh, was helping arrange events and so on. They eventually asked me to be the president of that for a few years, and、um, yeah, really just went all in with、uh, with networking. I actually I should say I network probably network too much with Danish people, but that was just an easy start.、Um, Since then, and that was also the motivation for doing my MBA was to really localize myself a lot more.、Um, a lot of people from all over China. It's funny because it's a Shanghai Jiao Tong University MBA, which is which actually the number one MBA program in the country, but also the same school that I had originally done my summer program at when I was back in university. So, going back a little bit full circle, many years later,、um, same school. Very different、uh, stage of life, even though、uh, I'm still quite young. I think I just turned thirty, March twenty seventh, so a few weeks ago.、Um, but yeah, that's that's the story of coming to China. I've been here eight years now, so I was going to be here for one year, and now it's eight. So who knows how long I'll actually end up being here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you moved to China to establish someone else's company, and you ended up establishing your own as well. Yeah, I did both. So the first one, the first one is still running and very successful.、Um, they just got a new majority investment、uh, globally, so the founder is very happy. And I and I think that、um, successful China business was a little bit of a help that he solved those problems. So I hope that I helped him out in that way.、Um, I know that they've they've been very successful since I also moved on to do my own thing. So so yeah, I've set up two companies now in China. So that's amazing, and you're just. Thirty delayed. Thank you. Birthday, by the way. <laughs> Thank you.、Um, so I'm assuming by now you're you're completely fluent in Chinese as well. I remember one of your co-founders, actually Mark. If I'm not wrong, he was、mm-hmm. living in China for even longer. Like he was there when he was a kid. Yeah,、But、yeah. It's been around 22 years、yeah. now for him. Wow, that's a、uh, that's crazy. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's Irish. Maybe we should say this. Um, originally, yeah. So, yeah. Well, his family moved to Beijing when when he was quite young. So he essentially grew up. I think he was eleven years old when he was when they moved to to China. And then he ended up actually、uh, they were going to go to international school, but his parents thought it might be better. So in the morning when they were, thought they were going off to international school, where they already had a few friends and were excited to go, they were like,、ah, "Actually, you're going to a local Chinese school instead," which、mm-hmm. was <laughs> quite the shock. But I think looking back,、uh, him and his brothers are quite happy about it because it gave them this amazing foundation of you know completely fluent Chinese and、uh, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. So 
Uh, my Chinese is yeah, it's it's, it's pretty good. I, I read and write, and you know, uh, we have we have many colleagues that don't speak English, so I, I'm I'm speaking Chinese every day. Yeah, and I really like uh, what you mentioned that you really got localized. I think is really uh, mm-hmm. important if you if you live in China. You have to. Um, you have to. Um, of course, there's examples of people who've done it without, but it just gets really difficult. And suddenly, if you want, if you want to build a business, especially, you are suddenly requiring everybody to speak English to to work for you. It, it doesn't really make much sense, I think. Um, and when you're, if you need to have a specific job role, someone fill that role. Do you want someone that's good at that, or do you want someone that's good at English? Because I would rather have someone that's just good at that and has been doing that and their education isn't a language education in English I want them to be you know an accountant or procurement person or or whatever it might be right Um, but um, a little Chinese even goes a long way and and a lot of Chinese goes even further so definitely worth the effort for sure not just with your team but also with suppliers I can imagine and all uh, other uh, Mm -hmm, actors mm -hmm. yeah no for sure I know the yeah. team aspect is very important in this project. So in Liba Beverages, your co-founders, Mark and Lars, are two good friends mm-hmm. of, of yours. Yeah. How was it to start the company with two good friends? I mean, founding a cocktail business with your friends, to me, sounds like the dream project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's been really great. And I think we're lucky because we have a lot of complementary skill sets. So the stuff that I like doing, in, in my work is, is not necessarily something that Mark or Lars likes to do and, and the same way around for them. I think also looking back, we've been very lucky to have been three co-founders instead of two uh, and instead of one because just doing it yourself can be tough. It, it's not always going to be, you know, uh, easy. There's going to be a lot of tough things to get through and hard and long hours and you know, sacrifices and so on. So it's nice to do it together with someone. And then the second part, why, why be three? Well, you're not always going to agree on everything. And when you're two people, how do you agree? At least when you're three, there's going to be either you all agree or maybe two people agree. And then the other one has to it's the majority. just, you know, yeah, majority rule. And, and, you know, we've been pretty reasonable with that and had some, whenever we've disagreed, we've always just had good discussions and then we've moved on and said, well, if two people think we should be doing this, that's what we're doing. So, so that's been that's been really helpful as well. Sure. So let's go back for a second to the early stages. So, how did mm-hmm. you guys go from having this idea for um, ready-to-drink cocktails to really building the the product? <clears throat> did you validate the idea somehow before starting the production? And what steps did you take to to build the first prototypes, for example? Yeah. So. So we were all living here and working full time for various um, companies, <clears throat> and um, we we decided to allocate some of our salary every month. And we probably did this for six months or so, pooling it together, using it for various um, expenses, whatever small investments we needed to make, or a small place to have for for rent so we could store our stuff, and really putting everything together so we could do procurement and buying things and, and throwing different events. And then we tried to also, um, you know, make some money. So, so doing various events, having home parties and, and selling to, to home consumers. And we did this in a very bootstrapped way in the beginning and really just trying to focus on customer feedback uh, and figuring out whether or not we had an idea we wanted to really go all in on 
um, we, we felt we did, but we wanted to be clear in, in the direction a little bit more before we really did that. And so, so yeah, we, we kind of bootstrapped it for, um, for, for, I want to say almost six months or maybe more. It was an idea stage, right? We were just having fun with it. We knew we wanted to do more. So it wasn't like, Hey, we want to do catering. We want to do this or that. It was the ambitions were to do something much bigger. We just felt well, so we wanted to be a little bit patient. So after that, we took in an investment about uh, 150,000 US dollars in, in seed capital. Uh, this was just from friends, family, and fools, you know, the three Fs. Um, just people who believed in us. It was a group of people. So per person, not really that much money. And they were just saying, hey, you guys believe in this? Okay, we'll, we'll give you some, some seed money to, um, to get going. And that meant that um, Mark and Lars started by, by quitting their jobs. And then I switched mine a little bit to be more part-time. I was able to do that. And, um, and then we went from there. Uh, now, actually, we just we just finished an investment um, recently with uh, four and a half million US dollars. So now we're ready to wrap up even more, uh, which is which is pretty exciting. So a few years, um, I think it's been quite the, the journey, especially when you throw in a year like COVID and having to like 2020, you know, with the COVID going on and having to adjust and go back and forth and develop. But um, it's been amazing. And, um, and now, yeah, we, we grew a lot last year. We grew a lot the year before that. And this year, we're probably going to grow even faster. So five now, I think we might even be 100 people by the end of the year. Yeah. Very, very impressive and very exciting times ahead. When it came to really mm -hmm. building the products, did any of you guys have any experience in drinks in the sector? So Mark, who started out being the, he was designated as a sales guy because he came from, from sales and he was selling whiskey and beer. So he had experience with beverage sales and he had a big um, network of potential clients for, for our, these new products we wanted to make. And then Lars became the operations guy or, you know, product and production because, well, his background was in furniture. So he's been going around to Chinese factories. Furniture is very different from drinks. And yet there's much overlap when it comes to suppliers in China, how to source quality control, you know, what kind of loopholes your, your pr producers or suppliers or whatever trying to jump through. And having that experience, he had many years, I think five or six years of experience with that. And, and that was, um, that was really helpful as well. So, we basically went on a, we knew what we wanted to get. And we went on a tour around different places, visiting different factories, a lot of Baijiu factories. So unfortunately also a lot of Baijiu drinking. Um, and we started, we also used different apps, local apps. There's one called Chi Cha Cha, which is um, one where you can search and investigate every business. It's all in public record. So you can search by their business scope, um, their license. Do they have any, uh, kind of criminal activity or how, what's the scale of their business, the registered capital, who are the legal representatives and the directors. You can, all kinds of information is actually public. Um, so you can search all of that and filter. And so we said, okay, well, in China, you can't just start making drinks in your garage and start selling them. I mean, I wish we could, but at the same time, it was kind of a, a blessing that it's so controlled because it forces you to be very serious about it. Um, some people will 
just not follow the rules, we're definitely not those people, especially as foreigners. It's not worth the risk. So we had to, you know, do a professional setup and we had to go around and find the right factories that had the right licensing, that had the right facilities and, and no, no record of any negative things, you know, like bad products or recalls or, or um, litigation in any way. Um, so, so really searching all over the, the nation for, <clears throat> for very specific potential factories, calling them. And you never know what kind of dialect and, you know, what kind of, you're talking to some old guy local in some random province. He's, he has a Baijiu factory and suddenly there's a foreigner calling him asking about making drinks there. He's like, what the hell? And he's like, can we come visit? And then we, we go and visit. And I mean, we've seen some, some cool places. We've also seen some real hell holes, um, which, which has been a, a, a <laughs> yeah, which has been a fun process. I can imagine. And especially if you're with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It's been, it's been really fun. And then, so that's, that's with kind of finding, um, kind of factories and so on. We've also been lucky to be in China because it's, it's really the most amazing marketplace in the world. You can source anything in China. I mean, anything. I think you could probably even buy vaccines on Taobao, but I'm not sure. And I wouldn't trust them, but you could really find anything. Um, and so we would source a lot of different raw materials, samples. You Because it's in China, you don't need to ship it to Europe or America, or whatever. So we can buy single units of whatever sample, you know, for one euro and it can arrive tomorrow. And, and so when you're doing this rapid iteration and product development, that's really a huge advantage. We, I mean, we could source hundreds of different parts and things and tests and whatever at a very small budget. So, so we started doing that. We, you know, really wanted to be, you have to find the right fit for quality and cost and reliable suppliers. And also, again, using that app, Chi Cha Cha, to double check, like do our background checks and due diligence on, on the suppliers and making sure that when they sent us something, that this also was something that was produced with the right license and even in the government registry, you know, sometimes you find it like, oh yeah, they have the license. You look at the license, it expired 10 years ago. They're like, oh, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I feel comfortable buying from, from that supplier. So you have to do all these things. Otherwise later on, it becomes a huge issue if suddenly, I mean, the paperwork that we have here is, is uh, it's a lot, um, a lot of cabinets with a lot of paperwork for every supplier, every production, every single Uh, export batch. I mean, it's stacks and stacks of paper, which is pretty unfortunate. I think it's not, you know, it, I wish it was all digital, but um, it's, it's still been, yeah, this marketplace and, and doing everything here has been both uh, good and bad. And, and with, with developing the product, you know, you just got to keep iterating. I think I could, you could probably claim to be one of the early guinea pigs <laughs> because, because yeah, we're, we're doing these early um, tests and like home parties and doing catering for different things okay, that served its purpose to generate a, a little bit of cash so that we could pay for the, um, the supplies that we used and some other things that we wanted to invest in and, and pay so we didn't have to put too much from our, from our own salaries. But at the same time, it's, it's real consumers that we can talk to, interact with, take notes from. It's not super scalable, but it didn't need to be. We, we weren't trying to scale that part. We were just trying to see what people thought. Expats in China local Chinese in China, um, corporates in China, hotels in China, whatever. We just wanted to gather information all the time, as much as possible. 
from our side, I think you can remember our very good food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The skinny drinks. I used yeah. to really, really like those ones. So you mentioned a little bit of the markets that you are currently selling to, especially in, uh, in Europe. What's the plan and what's the Yeah, so the first market in Europe, well, UK. So, you know, I don't know if we, UK is not really Europe. We started in the UK in December and we had a very good December, um, especially for launch uh, month. We, we, did, we did quite well. And then we didn't know what to expect from January and we didn't know what to expect from February, but we actually did even better in January than we did in December. And then we did really, really well in February. So it started really taking off in a, in a huge way. And we just didn't have enough products in, in the UK. So we had, we had sent products to Germany as well, which is going to be our central hub for, for Europe. And we had to reroute it to, to UK because we we're just selling out of everything. And we're, we even had to fly in some products sometimes, which is, oh, it hurts to pay the bill of the shipping company when you're flying pallets of, you know, glass bottle cocktails to, to UK. But it's a trade-off. It costs more in lost gross profit than the shipping fee of sending them and not being out of stock. And it costs even more if you're thinking, you know, a lot of consumers that are getting excited by it, we had a high... Uh, repurchase rate as well and then you come in and boom it's all out of stock it doesn't that doesn't really it's not really a good experience right so are those people going to come back who knows um so it's been a it's been really good it's not been without its challenges of course and especially with with us having to figure out how much stock we need for market it's it's a you just have to explore but now we're producing a ton and we're sending it over so we're starting also in a couple of months in Germany, Switzerland, Denmark. And then we have a handful of other markets coming online in Europe um, before the end of the year, Italy also being one of them. And, um, and we are now already also in Japan and, and we have product on the way to Australia, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, big markets for us as well. Of course, China, our home market, um, which is a huge market. And, and so, yeah, we're, we're expanding rapidly. Thailand, we wish was better, but it's complete lockdown. So it still moves just like local um, staycations and, and boat trips and various restaurants and so on. But it's nowhere near what we had expected. Um, Vietnam is coming online. Indonesia is coming online. Almost too many. Um, and we're expanding very fast. And it's a very deliberate, well thought out kind of expansion plan. Also, our team is constantly uh, monitoring and, and working around the clock really hard and making sure everything goes smoothly with all these new markets that are coming online. But it's exciting. I mean, the culture, everybody's having fun. It's, it's super exciting. We're all trying to build the global leader in ready-to-drink cocktails, premium, I should say. And it's fun, right? You said it earlier. You couldn't think of a better job than starting a cocktail company with, uh, with your friends. And, and that's, that's how I feel as well. And in, in here in Europe, are you selling B2C or also B2B? Yeah, so we already have a, a few hotel accounts in London. Um, we've been, we, we've, we've actually, because of the B2C that we're doing, we get a lot of inbound leads for B2B as well. We just started with a distributor in London. We, we wanted to do more B2B in December and January and February, but um, because we barely had enough stock to sell B2C, and obviously B2C, the selling price is much higher. So anything we take away from inventory of B2C and sell B2B is just a huge um, compromise on revenue. So we had to say, okay, well, we don't want to be out of stock, but if we haven't launched the B2B yet, we're technically not, 
we just haven't launched it. We're not out of stock. Um, so we, we just delayed the launch on B2B a little bit and we're doing that now. So we have a lot of different accounts coming online, pubs in Wales, um, ramen shop, a kind of like upscale funky ramen shops, um, restaurants all over, hotels. There's, there's so much stuff. And actually all of these are just <clears throat> things that have come in. So they've gone to our website and, and made a request and, and wants to start with Libo. So that's been fantastic. So we're really excited about the whole European launch. Um, and UK is going to be a, a key market for us. We actually have an office in, um, in Shoreditch now, um, a decently large-sized office with a big rooftop terrace. There's right now eight people sitting in that office. Exactly, ready, yeah. Um, and little-known secret is all, all of our offices have uh, speakeasy bars. So if you go and visit them, you need to you need to ask that they're going to serve you a drink Um Serve your drink in the speakeasy bar. Tell, tell them I sent you. Yeah, I certainly would. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun little gimmick, right? And we have these small, we have, you know, the offices are not huge. We don't need them to be, um, but kind of like uh, 20, 25 people in, in an office. So that's kind of what Shanghai looks like now. That's what UK is going to look like. That's what Singapore is going to look like as well. That one's even smaller than UK, but coming together. And then we have a lot of people working from home in various places, five people in the Philippines, two in Mexico, one in the Netherlands, kind of, yeah, all over. Um, and, and, and with the physical offices, that's, yeah, it's just more fun, right? It's about the culture. It's about being a creative workplace. Uh, it's about having that ability to invite customers over and just take them into the secret, through the secret door. In Shanghai, it's a vending machine like a fake vending machine that you have to open on the side and go through the curtains and you come into this full on uh, speakeasy bar. Um, super fun. So we use that for live streaming. We use it for videos, for photos. We use it for meetings with, you know, whoever it might be customers, suppliers, uh, investors, whatever. So we use them a lot. They're a very good investment, but they're also just a huge benefit and also a workplace hazard because let me tell you when you're, sitting and a day is getting longer and longer and there's a speakeasy with a lot of booze right behind you it's it's a little bit too <laughs> it's too tempting sometimes yeah so i was thinking yeah yeah, yeah no for sure <laughs> that's uh, that's amazing can i ask you alex did you always know that you wanted to start your own company you kind of mentioned that you didn't expect to end up in something like this but was it in your yeah in your mind for quite some time Yes, I, I, I'm pretty certain. I'm pretty sure I always wanted to start my own company. I am also certain I never thought I'd do an F&B company. Um, that just wasn't something, I don't have any background in it. I've never been a bartender, an exologist. Um, and, you know, thank, thankfully we brought on Michael Chan very early on, so I don't need to be. Um, and the, the beauty of, of having them pre-batched is that I can also make good drinks now and I don't have any training. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but doing cocktails is certainly also uh, more chance than planning, I would say. Right. I see. If you could give one piece of advice to somebody who's starting out their own drink brand, what would you tell them? A uh, drink brand. Okay. So if you're starting a drink brand, I would say if you master the product, and master is a strong word, but really focus on having a good product. That's the that's the key number right. one. 
yeah. you know, and that's just rapid iteration. That's the whole uh, $100 startup mentality, zero to one, whatever, all the books. I've read all of them. I'm sure, you know, they're super cliche right now, but they're, they're good and they're relevant. You want to do a lot of testing and you want to listen to customers. So if you're starting a drink brand, how many people in your samples and your trials, how many people have tasted them and what do they think? And have you made a drink that people like drinking? I mean, I think that's, it sounds super basic, but a lot of people make assumptions around things and then go ahead. It's like, oh, I really like this. And then boom, they start doing, doing that product. And that's great if you love your product, but you really want to make sure that other people love your product too. And you want to try and figure out what's your target audience. We always need to worry about the TA and say, what are they like? And so the Libra drinks that we have now is really the result of thousands of tests um, and inputs and feedbacks around tweaking. And we're still working on them and still trying to make them better. Um, and we're going to keep work trying to make them better. So We've been lucky, I think, because we had such a heavy B2B focus in the beginning, we were not focused on doing all the marketing. We, we wanted to do more, um, more word of mouth and just kind of traditional sales and, and do that for hotels. And, and it was going really well. So I think the product, it, it definitely didn't sell itself in that way because it's very new and a novel thing. So, you know, people still, before COVID at least, were, were wondering, do I trust a cocktail that comes from a bottle? Um, we're very lucky that, it sounds bad, but we're lucky that COVID kind of helped force people to try it because they were at home. So they have to try it and they say, oh, actually it does taste good. Um, but that that's the second part to it. So first, yeah, have a good product. And secondly, I, marketing is so, so important. So um, if you're trying to start a, a brand, so I think drink brand, yes, you need to have a good drink. Starting a brand, you need to be good at marketing. It, it becomes really difficult without. And what we're seeing now is, and it's probably a, a big mistake of ours to be, to be very honest. We, we didn't believe marketing would benefit us that much. We didn't know. And what we were trying to do before would have been a lot easier if we had done, done a lot more marketing. Um, we still were happy with our results. So it's only in hindsight that I can say that because when something's not broken, what, why would you fix it? But, and, and we were doing well. We, we, I'm just, in hindsight, I know we could have done a lot better if we had focused more on marketing. Um, so I would say, you know, really worry about storytelling, which is part of the marketing, your messaging, figure out, figure out what message you're trying to convey to, to your consumers with this drink brand and, and credibility. How do you, how do they trust you? Why should they, why should they drink your drink? What, what's, What's the message you're trying to convey to your target audience? So who is your target audience? What's the message? And how do you convey credibility so that they actually want to try it and think that it, it makes sense to try it? You know, I, I would say marketing and products. Those are insanely important. Great. That's amazing, amazing advice. Thank you. Thank you so much. What are some of your personal values that you live by and that you also brought into your company? Oh, that's a good question. So what we have as a really good mix in Laiba is this mix of Danish and Chinese values. I mean, so we, we have a very flat organization still. 
Um, and of course, you, it's easy to say that when it's a small company, I realize that. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I mean, it, it, it truly is a flat organization and it is going to keep being a flat organization. Um, and that's very Danish. Um, and I think there's a lot of similarities between Denmark and, and China. And so for us, you know, the values are that everybody's important and the values are that you lead by example and you treat everybody with respect. It's super important. So we have to, we have to work as a team. And we have to make sure that everybody feels like they're part of the team and they're contributing and they understand their role. And that's, um, you know, we're all kind of in this together. That's, uh, that's, it's a core kind of value and mentality to, to have, but it's, it's something that we've really um, benefited a lot from. And then transparency. So being honest about things, you know, when we're fundraising, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that on the company updates and so on. When we're, Whatever is going on, we're pretty open about it, um, and everybody knows what's going on. And it becomes a lot easier also to convey your vision and to convey the the mission. And people know when it's going well. People know when it's not going as well. If there's something that we're behind on, and that can be a, an incredible motivator if you have the right people because they know what's at stake and they know what we're trying to achieve. And they, it's fun. It's it's a part of like everyday you know, work. It's all this whole mentality. We actually have something which is kind of fun. It came recently, but every single day we say happy Monday. Even if on a Friday we say happy Monday, we all say, oh, thank God the weekend is over and I'm back at work. Um, and <laughs> I don't know if we have brainwashed them into saying that, but but that's kind of the culture and some of the values that we have is that it has to be fun and how we have to enjoy our colleagues um, we have a strict no assholes rule. Um, and <laughs> so we, you know, it doesn't, performance doesn't, it, it, it's, it, oh, it can, if you have someone who's performing well, but they're toxic, that it's, it's a net negative, even if their individual contribution is positive. So really like teamwork, being together, flat organization and enjoy your work, but lead by example, work hard. You know, we still have, we work really, really hard. And the whole team works really, really hard. So that's just, you can't have um, a team where you need to push everybody up the hill. You have to have everybody contributing. Everybody's helping pull, not, you know, being pulled. So awesome. Awesome. Sounds as well like a very good environment. I find it very interesting, mm -hmm. uh, the, the combination of Danish culture and Chinese culture. Yeah, well, you know, Denmark is also, it's a socialist country and you know we like the the whole mentality is taking care of each other and, and so on and and we have free healthcare and education and that's not something you find everywhere and of course we're a small country we're a wealthy country so it's a lot easier but still there's a lot of values in Denmark that are similar in in China you know it's not an individualistic uh, country Uh, and China also isn't. One last question, Alex. Um, in your experience so far, what does it take for an entrepreneur to run a successful business? Grit. Grit, hard work, persistence, confidence. Um, you know, I think you just really have to believe. And then you even have to be a little bit um, crazy so that when things are not going well, you, you still believe. Uh, I've always believed things have not always gone well, you know, and that's just how it is. And that's, I think there's, when you 
really go deep on many different companies, they've not always gone well, of course, and they're never going to keep always going well. So you have to have a certain level of thick skin. Um, I think one of the important things I've realized recently as well is the ability to compartmentalize things. So if things are going well in one area, but really poorly in another area, you cannot let that poor performing or, you know, if something's uh, metaphorically speaking on fire, you cannot let that affect you when you're dealing with the other stuff uh, that, that's going well. The faster you move, the, the more departments are going to have some kind of smoke or fire going on at some point because you're just scaling up fast and rapidly trying to do too many things at once. And I'm saying that deliberately, it is too many things at once. That's part of the, the process as well in many instances. Um, and it's important that if you're talking to investors or if you're talking to sales or if you're talking to operations or whatever it is, you need to be able to compartmentalize um, the different aspects and be zoned in at the task and the work in front of you. So if you're working on sales or working on product, that's what you're doing when you're doing that. And with that team, that's what you're doing. And you're putting your best face forward and you're not saying, you know, oh shit, I, I can't stop thinking about this other thing that is stressing me out. Hard work and yeah, a little bit of a healthy, healthy craziness, <laughs> if that makes sense. I like that. I like that a lot. This was amazing, Alex. Thank you so, so much. It was really fun. I loved it. You guys are doing so, so well. It was very inspiring to, to hear your story and it brought back so many nice memories. I want to go back to Shanghai now. <laughs> Please, yes, you're always welcome. So Thank you so much for, for doing this and inviting me on. Yeah, my pleasure. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you in Laibab, where can they find you? Searching Laibab beverages on most platforms, whether that's Instagram or whether it's just searching it on Google, our website will come up. Our website does have ways to get in touch. Um, also, yeah, this, I think it's pretty easy if you search Laibab beverages on either Google or Instagram to get in touch and writing to us. There's going to be someone who's going to be responding. Um, I do see most of this, maybe not Instagram, but website inquiries and so on. I do get um, reports on that and see if anything's um, kind of addressed to me. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be notified. So, so that's a good way to get in touch. Um, LinkedIn as well. You know, I'm on LinkedIn and um, I get a lot of requests, so I don't accept a lot of them, but I think I'm quite good at giving the benefit of the doubt. Also, if it's someone that has a, an actual, you know, request or says hey i saw you on this podcast i heard you here or i uh, such and such or this if it's a real person with a real request i'm, I'm usually always um uh, open to to having a, a little conversation or saying hi that's awesome thanks again alex thank you thank you georgia and thank you everybody for listening i'll see you in the next episode <laughs>